Amen. Love for you to take the Word of God and turn to Philippians chapter 2 this morning. Philippians chapter number 2. We'll pick up our exposition where we ended last week. But I want to read the entirety of the portion of Scripture here, verse 1 through 11, but our focus this morning will be on verses 3 and 4. If you're willing and able, we'll stand out of reverence for the reading of God's Word. We'll pick up our reading in verse number 1, and we'll go to the Lord in prayer. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind. Let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look not out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let us pray. Father, we are so grateful Maybe not as grateful as we ought to be. But Father, forever grateful of all that you have and continue to accomplish in our lives through your Son. Father, we recognize that not only do all things come from you, Father, but we are what we are by the grace of God. And that's the only reason, Father, we have anything to boast in this morning. Father, we boast not in ourselves, we boast not in our strength, Father, not in me. We bring you nothing this morning, Father, um, except what you have given us. So may you help us to bring it faithfully, Father, by your power and by your might and by your spirit. Father, make us hungry this morning. Make us thirsty. Father, help us to, to see eternal things. Father, not only to long for those, but to look for them and to boast in them, Father. Let our boast this morning be, after we've left this place, that we saw Christ Him high and exalted, Father, that His love abounds in us evermore. And we have a desire for holiness. And because we've been with the Lord, because He was among His people. Father, we know that You're among us this morning, just walking among the candlesticks. And Father, pray that we would be found faithful. So go with me now, Father. Preach to my heart. Conform me to the image of Your Son. And Father, do the same for all that are sitting here before us. Father, from the littlest to the greatest, from the youngest to the oldest, Father, take something that we've done this morning and accomplish something for your glory and your honor. And we'll give you all the praise, Father, because we know that outside of Christ, we can do nothing. So help us make much of him in this hour. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Thank you so much for standing. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, 
Let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Last week, I sought simply to exhort you to unity. Because I believe that's what Paul is exhorting the church at Philippi to. Unity being that principle of being united. We're joined as a whole. Why should we be one? Sought to answer that question. Number one, because Jesus Christ died to accomplish that. And to make it a reality, not only eternally, but temporally, here and now. This is what we should strive for. That He died not only to unite us to Himself, but also to unite His sons and daughters in the faith, one to another, in one body, one temple, one building, uh, multiple illustrations all throughout the text of Scripture to illustrate to us this organizing principle, this uniting of the body. And this, I argued, would be one of the primary ways in which the Lord Jesus Christ Himself would display His glory not only to us, but also to the whole world. John chapter 17. Thus Paul pleased with the church at Philippi to be united, to avoid divisions, to love one another, to be submissive, to have a yielded spirit. This was at the center of Christ's prayer in John 17, and this was one of the many things that is a death accomplished upon the cross. Particularly, we read Ephesians 2 and 3, that great mystery, bringing a Jew and Gentile who were at enmity, broke down that wall, a partition of enmity, and brought these unthinkable people, um, rebellious people together. And that basis of that uniting was Christ Himself, the chief cornerstone, the very foundation upon which we stand. And if theological argument wasn't enough, it's practical as well. What does it look like? Paul tells us in Philippians 1.27-30, through 30, it looks like one whole healthy man, a person who has one mind. Uh, Philippians chapter 2 and verse number 2. One spirit, one soul, one purpose in the midst of a great battle against his adversaries. And to advance, he needs to com- be a complete and a healthy man. Otherwise, he will crumble underneath the adversary. Thus, Paul's pleading with the people at Philippi for that reality. Now, the question is now, How? How are we to accomplish this? Practically, temporally, here, now, how do we proceed forward in that? In this text, Paul reminds us that God has designed to accomplish this reality through the gift of particularly divine graces in the life of the believer. And we'll address this more in the verses before us in a few minutes, but simply to say that this truth cannot be accomplished by strength alone. Not human intellect, not just raw power. It's not something that you can concoct by human invention. I mean, it's something that is born out of a cultivated spirit of God as it works through the life of a corporate body of believers. And that's what we're going to see in this text. But a couple of notes before we proceed. So still in the introduction here, I want to give you just a few remarks beforehand to prepare us. Number one. When we talk about unity, we have to define what type of unity we're talking about. What I mean is, is that when we talk about unity in this text, we're talking about unity within the context of the Philippian church. As in our application, we'll extrapolate that data to speak about the unity that we have here, and are to have here, at Christ Bible Church. And how to achieve that through these spirit-wrought graces. 
In other words, Paul is writing to a defined group of people and he's instructing them how to relate to one another. And you may say, well, duh. (laughs) What else would he mean? But I think that that needs to be said. Because for much of Christianity, we really lost the concept of the local church. So when I say unity, or Paul urges for unity, some may have walked away last week, and I think some did, um, thinking unity in the sense of the church universal. We're all Christians everywhere at all times, all professing believers. Then we may have walked away wondering, what about all the divisions in the church universal? What about denominationalism? What about all the divisions over the issues that we see today? What are we to do? How are we to ever be unified? Is this possible at all? Um, And some of what I said and am going to say can be applied to those issues. But I think it's essential to recognize that that's not what Paul's dealing with here. And that's not what I was dealing with. His goal in the text is not to unite the churches across Europe. Paul's primary goal is to teach them, those defined believers in the church at Philippi, which is composed of elders, deacons, and members of that congregation, how to live and function in accord with one another, primarily for the sake of the gospel. This unit, this local church, this defined group of people. So to here this morning, I'm not trying to instruct last week, this week, next week, how to relate with Baptists across the street, Methodists down the road, Presbyterians across Kingsport, or the home church in Iran. But those that are here, how we are to relate one to another. Those other topics are good. We need to talk about those. But Paul's not writing to this church to teach them necessarily how to, how to coalesce with the greater portion of Christianity. He's teaching them how to love one another. Number two, second remark. Their disunity does not appear to be doctrinal. Or... Boys and girls, that just means the teaching of the church at Philippi. There doesn't, need, there doesn't seem to be any great discrepancy over the teaching ministry of the church. Or at least pertaining to the essential doctrines of the faith. Such as the gospel. You may ask them, what's their disagreement? I don't know. <laughs> you know I, but I'm confident that it's not doctrinal. How do I know that? Number one, Paul doesn't address it. Um, listen, Paul's, you know, we have more than enough evidence to know that if there was an issue with the gospel or some doctrinal issue, some issue coming from the pulpit, Paul um, pulled no punches when it came to the gospel. Galatians 5.2 Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you have become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified in the law, you've fallen from grace. You know what Paul's remedy for a church with a false gospel is? Just let it go, you know, let, let's diversify. I mean, it's all just let, let go and let God and let bygones be bygones. They'll do their thing, we'll do theirs. No, you've been severed from Christ. And you need to return. Titus 3.9, you know what he encourages Titus to do at the churches in Crete? Avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition. The issue at Philippi is not doctrinal. And there's something else going on that is, that is, um, that is causing division within the church, um, but it doesn't seem to be an essential doctrine. Why? Because Paul would have addressed it. Nowhere in Philippi or in the book of Philippians, in this letter, do we see any, um, any condemnation or rebuke or admonition, um, particularly based upon the gospel. But they were, in, they were in defense of it together. They were unified in that. Paul's already rejoiced in that. Um, another reason that I'm confident of that is in uh, chapter 4 and verse number 1. Look at me for just a moment. 
You read these words, Therefore, my beloved and long for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord. It almost sounds like Philippians chapter 1, right? Stand fast, he says. And then he's going to do the same thing. He's going to encourage them to what? To be unified in the Lord. But particularly now, he is so invested in this church that he actually names two people that he's heard of that is in the midst of a contention. And he says in verse number 2, I implore Euodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Um, And we'll preach this text in the coming months, but I just want to just a few things. Number one, Paul displays the church here as a place of fundamental oneness whose names are all in the book of life. It seems like Euodia and Syntyche um, are probably, now this is my opinion, you, you can take it or leave it, but it is, there's, there's a good chance that these ladies were a part of the prayer meeting with Lydia. There was a women meeting there. Paul hasn't been to Philippi many times, but these ladies labored with him in the gospel. And it seems as if he is referring to all those names in the book of life, including Syntyche and Euodia. They are united in the gospel. I didn't deal with unity around doctrinal issues last week because Paul didn't deal with unity around doctrinal issues last week. Why? Because they weren't doctrinal. You know, I didn't get into deep concerns about the doctrinal disunity of this church because I know what 95% of you believe. We're gathered around the same thing. We're all believers in the Lord and we're battling together um, for the sake of the gospel. Number two, they labored side by side with me in the gospel. Not only did they agree on the gospel and they were, they, as far as Paul could tell, they were all, all their names were written in the book of life, but they labored together for the purpose of the gospel. That's what he says, labored with me. It could actually be translated side by side. They agree on the gospel and they agree on what to do with the gospel to take it throughout Philippi, and to the ends of the earth. Paul doesn't address Euodia. He doesn't address Syntyche. He doesn't sit them down and correct their doctrinal misgivings. He actually doesn't correct them at all. He doesn't say, hey, you're a heretic. You need to get out of the church. He doesn't sit down with both of them and counsel them. And Surely he knows what the um, contention is about. But he calls upon them to be of the same mind, and he calls upon them to work through it, and he calls upon the church to come alongside them and help and aid them um, in it. So again, the plea here is not let us unify doctrinally. But the call here is is that as we are unified doctrinally, um, let us move forward with the gospel and not allow these secondary and tertiary issues um, to, to divide us in what God has given us to do. It's imperative to remember that, um, the, that the divisive issues in the church are not only over teaching, you know, uh, not only over the essential doctrines of the faith, but can be secondary and tertiary issues. Um, and most of the time, if not all of those, um, will, will come down and rise or fall upon humility and grace um, within the, the life of that church as to whether they continue to divide the church or whether um, they actually strengthen the church. You say, is that possible? I mean, <laughs> a church fall apart who is theologically stable? Yes, Ephesians chapter two, or, uh, the church at Ephesus, Revelation chapter 2, they were doctrinally sound. And what was John concerned about? That they had left their first love. Um, they had left their first love. 
that it is possible that quarrels and divisions come within the church on non-essential matters. And it is actually those things that divide the church. Because really, we don't divide over essential things. Why? Because the essential things are gospel things. And if we're dividing over gospel things, we're not actually dividing. We're purging the body of unbelievers which have no basis of union with Christ and His church. We don't divide over essential doctrines. It is the essential doctrine of the gospel that unites us in Christ. And in that, we are to to move forward in humility and in self-forgetfulness. Number three. I know it's a long introduction. This is what I do. You know, number three, last remark, I promise. I must state once more, as I did last week, uniformity is not the same as unity. Unity is not the same as uniformity. So what I'm not arguing for or seeking to produce here is uniformity across the board. I'm not here to produce a cult. Neither is Brother Robert. The leadership of this church, we're not trying to create and cultivate robots that look exactly like um, us, act exactly like us, and function like us. So when you travel among the people of this church, you'll note biblically informed divisions, good ones, or differences among the people. We're not exactly the same. Why? Because the church is not simply swallowing everything that one man pushes down their throats, but exercising their priesthood given to them by Christ and being good Bereans to see whether or not these things are so. Personal sanctification and discipleship assume growth. You know what growth assumes? Change. Through sanctification and discipleship, we change into conformity with Christ. So we're all at different stages in our spiritual lives. Some more mature, some less, but all growing in Christ. Because of that, we have one requirement to be a member here, really, and that is is that you are a believer. You don't have to conform to every single thing that we we believe or we recommend. Um, but, but, but once a believer comes to Christ, they come into the church for discipleship, which, which, which means that they're not there yet. Just like we are not there. We're all growing. We're all different. And at the same time, we're, even as we grow in maturity, we'll still be different. Um, that's what makes the body function. Right? You pull a liver, a lung, a thyroid, an appendix out of my body, you put it on the table, and it'll be hard to say, like, those are the same. <laughs> They're made of different materials. They perform different functions. And some, some of those things, appendix, we don't even know what it does. You know? They're different sizes. They're different structures. They're different colors. And, and this we know, but they all work together for the same purpose. And when you slice them down to the most fundamental building block of life, their DNA is that with, we'll know who they belong to. Now, you could stack up a hundred livers, a hundred lungs, a hundred thyroids, put them into a pot, mix them up, Slice them down to the core, and you can put all of them back together. Why? Because the most fundamental building block, they're the same. That's Christian. Christians are the same. They're different, yet the same. Churches are the same. You know, there are differences. We don't necessarily look alike, do the same function. Some wonder, you know, what we, some of them do at all. But, but, but cut them down to the most fundamental level at the core. We all agree on the gospel. Euodian Syntyche, if there's differences among them, be of the same. But, but we're, in, we're, we're in the gospel. You're there with Clement. You're there with Paul. You're there with the fellow laborers, the yoke fellows. We're, we're different, but we're the same. And the fact that we are different actually is what, what aids in the body to function appropriately and to be the whole healthy man. So encourage those differences functionally, practically. We're not pumping out robots. End of last remark. So, so in the church at Philippi, who appear to be unified in doctrine, how are they to achieve with their differences among them and maintain unity as a congregation in the gospel? 
They'll achieve it through the work of the Spirit, cultivating two primary graces in the life of the people of God here at Pilpi. Principally, I'll give you this morning, humility and self-forgetfulness. And in all reality, you could almost just roll those up into one. And then in just a moment, um, there's going to be, it's going to be hard to differentiate the two. But really, humility, you could think of it like this to help you. Humility is my, my perception of myself. Self-forgetfulness or selflessness um, is my perception of others. Um, it's inward and then it's outward. If you've got a humility that doesn't produce an outward expression of love um, towards the people of God, then you have a false humility. Um, that humility, a right standing before God, a lowliness of mind in the presence of God will produce a divine grace in you to forget yourself and to pursue others. So it's really one grace, one coin with two sides um, to that coin. Humility and selflessness or self-forgetfulness some have, have coined it. So number one, verse number three, we see that the way to pursue Unity within this body, um, outside of doctrinal disagreement, we're, we're assuming that for the most part we agree on the gospel, but there may be contentions within the body on secondary and tertiary issues. How do we pursue unity? Paul calls Philippi to humility of mind. Humility of mind. The number one grace, that one side of the coin, the head side of the coin, it's Paul calls us, as he did Philippi, to humility. Paul issues the church a call to unity, and he does it in two ways. He does it negatively, telling you what it is not, and then he does it positively, telling you what it is. He'll do the same with self-forgetfulness, but it'll be negative, positive, positive, negative. He'll issue a warning. Don't be like this. And then he'll issue an exhortation Pursue this. Run from this. Pursue this. Kill this. Cultivate life in this area. So he begins negatively with the call to humility. Verse 3, and I urge you also... Sorry, I'm still in chapter number 4. Verse number 3, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. You may have a translation that says humility and vain or vain glory. So he begins with a warning. Why? Because Paul, their spiritual father, knows that sin remains in them. And really, at the base of all sin, you'll find that you can probably boil all sin down to this one fundamental sin that we call pride. You study the Scriptures and you'll find that pride is the most fundamental of every one of them. And arguably continues to find its root in every soul in some sense, even the life of a believer. It's arguable that it's at the base of every sin. Just as Christ is the chief cornerstone and the foundation of every righteous act, pride could be argued to be at the foundation of every sin. It's a vicious animal. Um, Pride's an agent of self and Satan that is a destroyer of everything that it touches. Thus Paul argues and warns them to flee from it. Flee from particularly what? Selfish ambition or vainglory, empty conceit. He says, let nothing be done through. You know how much selfish ambition Paul argues should be in your life and should be tolerable? 
We like, to, we like to measure how much is enough, you know, especially with other people. I know that, that this person was like that, but I wasn't quite that bad, you know. I only have about 10% selfish ambition in my life, and that seems to suffice for me. You know what Paul says? Zero. Your target level of selfish ambition is zero percent. Your Christian conduct should be governed by a love of self zero out of 100 times. Why? Because it's a graceless principle. It's a principle of works. When I say works, I don't mean that... Uh, what I mean by that is not just selfish ambition works and humility doesn't work, just throws its arms down. But a principle of works would be a principle that labors for their own salvation, putting them self first, relying wholly upon self instead of the grace of God. It is a principle that mocks grace. It says, I don't need God. Why? Because I can do it by myself. It has no need of grace. Paul says, you need grace. In your life, if unity is going to be accomplished, you need divine grace. Thus, you need lowliness of mind instead of selfish ambition. The word used in chapter 2 and verse number 3 of selfish ambition denotes just that. A drive that is to promote self. It is selfish. Paul uses it in chapter 1, verse 16 of Philippians. The former preached Christ through selfish ambition. Not sincerely, supposing to add affliction in my chains. And that's contrasted with love. He says the latter out of love. It's not a love principle. It's not a grace principle. Um, it's not divinely wrought. It's human, born. And it protects and go is governed by man for man's sake. Um, the word apparently was an, a political term in modern Greek um, societies. The definition is literally, if you go to Strong's um, or, or just one of the references on Bible Hub or Blue Letter Bible, you, you'll read this, the uh, electioneering or intriguing for office. Apparently, um, it goes on to say in the New Testament, or uh, in the time prior to the New Testament, it was a courting distinction or term. Um, a desire to put oneself forward as a political office, a partisan or a fractitious spirit. It was found in secular literature such as Aristotle's work and denoted a, quote, self-seeking pursuit of political office by unfair means. That it was seeking to put oneself forward um, for the purpose of position and prominence. And the New Testament is clear, Paul, Jesus, everyone. Entirety of the New Testament as well as the Old Testament. Um, this is a sinful attitude that should not govern the life of the church. Should not. Is there anybody within the Scriptures that we could um, argue um, that is like this? Um, 3 John, verse number 9. You read of a man by the name of Diotrephes. You read these words, I wrote to the church, he says. This is John writing. But Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, does not receive us. Therefore, if I come, I'll call to mind his deeds, which he does, prating against us with malicious words, not content with that, he himself does not receive the brethren. Forbids those who wish to, putting them out of the church. John goes on to say, Beloved, do not imitate what is evil. Who loves to have preeminence among them. This is selfish ambition. Diotrephes um, has pervaded and invaded, permeated this church. And what he's done is he's raised himself up to a place of preeminence. Why? Because he loves it. That's what the word means. It's, a, it's actually, it precedes 
um, preeminence, that, that term love, and it's, an, it's a present active participle. It's like a, a, a verbal noun or verbal adjective. It's, it could actually be translated the, the, the self-loving one, the, uh, self, the, the, the loving, uh, preeminent first place loving diatrophies. It was a defining characteristic of his life and his ministry. What happens when you have such a man? He guards his ministry with everything he's got. So the text says he receives us not. He wouldn't receive John. You know? He doesn't take well to rivals. He's there to put himself forward. So he doesn't receive him nor the brethren, the text says. He won't tolerate it. So when John comes to serve the people of God out of self-giving love, Diotrephe says, no man, no way. He doesn't receive the brethren. He rules like a tyrant. Acts chapter 20 and verse number 28 and the Apostle Paul, as he's leaving Ephesus, warns the people of God there, Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, the shepherd, to shepherd the church of God, which he's purchased with his own blood. For this I know, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also among you, spare yourselves. Well, men will rise up, speaking perverse things. Why? He says, to draw away disciples after themselves. Um... John Calvin, in a commentary on this verse, says, quote, Ambition is the mother of all heresy. And I think he's right. Um, and what he means by that is, is that oftentimes we look at a man as a false teacher by the content of his message. But what we have to remember is that oftentimes the content of his message is dictated by the corruption of his heart. That oftentimes novel, new, visionary type of, of, of heresies and false doctrine often are produced out of a corrupt heart that desires a following. They want men to follow them, to bow down for them, uh, to, to follow fall all over them. Uh, why? Because they've got this new novel that when you go throughout the Scriptures, what you find, particularly in the New Testament, as much as it deals with false teachers, uh, more than not, what you find is them... Uh, uh, delineated because of their character, not necessarily their teaching. False teachers oftentimes are defined by their character and that they're pursuing the ministry for greed, out of self-love and out of pride. Thus, they'll pervert the Word of God um, to draw a following after them. That, that This is the definition of wolves. So some of the heresy that you see, um, some of the false teaching, the different Gospels um, were born out of corrupt hearts that men would become healthy, wealthy, and various other things. That's what Acts chapter 20 guards against that. What happens um, to that? What happened? What does this type of spirit do to the congregation? It cultivates a spirit of disunity that forces the leader to rule like a tyrant. Um, why? Because he cannot have any rivals. Just as in 3 John, verse number 9. Mark chapter 10, you see a similar scenario. Um, James and John are there. Um, encourage you, verses 1035 through 45, um, to look through that. Um, James and John are there fighting over the first place, seated next to um, Jesus Christ. And what does Jesus Christ do? He rebukes them. Um, why? Because of a spirit, a spirit of rivalry. A spirit of rivalry. Um, and I want to go and read that to you. Now that I think about it, I didn't put it in my notes. But I believe that they parallel chapters in Matthew chapter 20. But you read the passage of uh, the greatness of serving in Mark chapter 10 and verse number 35. 
Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to them saying, Teacher, what do you want us to do for us whatever we ask? Or we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said, Grant us that we may sit, one on your right hand and one other on the left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You don't know what you ask. And he goes on to ask them about the baptism, if they could drink it, the baptism that he's going to be baptized with. And they say, We're able. (laughs) And then he says, You will. Verse number 40, But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give. But it's for those whom it is prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. Spirit of rival, you know what it does within the body? Um, it divides. And now what you have is ten against the two, or ten against the one, and the one against the one, as they argue over it. In verse number 41, And when the ten heard it, they became greatly displeased with James and John. But Jesus called to them to himself and said, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. You know what he says? He says, you're thinking like the world. You're thinking like Gentiles. You're thinking like unbelievers. Um, and what happens in that scenario is, is that tyrants come in and they lord it over them. Why? Because that's what it takes for men to follow. When anyone questions, they put them out of the church like in Third John. They don't lead like... Um, Peter commends us to in 1 Peter chapter 5, shepherd the flock of God, he says to the elders, which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, by, by, uh, by, by, by willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those who's, who's entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Likewise, you younger, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you, be submissive to one another, clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you in due time. What was His commendation to, the, to, to James and John and the other ten? He says in verse 43, It shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. Sounds like Peter was there. Sounds like that was part of the influence in First Peter chapter number 5. You know, that what ends up happening with selfish ambition and vain conceit is that out of a corrupt heart, um, men strive for others to follow. And they have to result to a tyrannical type of leadership that, that puts the thumb over, that holds people out and holds um, people in. It, it, it corrupts and it causes a divisive spirit and, and contention among the body. And Jesus Christ says, for my people, my flock, this is not how you govern yourself. Jesus Christ unites you in the body. You don't lead that way, men. Pastors, husbands, you don't lead that way. You're not tyrants. You're first and foremost servants if you're a husband to your wife. Yes, she is to be submissive. We don't disregard those scriptures. We know her duties, but men know yours. Pastors, men want to lead. Be elders within a church. You're not a tyrant. You're not a dictator. You're not lording over men. You're leading, and you're leading primarily by example and by a humility of hearts. You are first and foremost a servant called to die on the altar of service for the flock that God has given you. You are shepherds first and foremost. 
You're not out there dictating and a tyrant over the sheep. They're following you. You, you, when wolves are around, you lay in the door and you stay up all night. Why? Because they're yours. And God's ordained your position over them. This is how men lead. They're governed by grace and by humility and by self-forgetfulness. In the midst of it, they forget their own interest and they look to the interest of others, those whom God has given them to serve. All throughout the New Testament, this is the call. This is the call to Christian. This is the call to, to men. This is the call to women. This is our call to lead. To, and, and leadership is service. It's service. It's not, it's not selfish ambition. It's not motivation to promote one's itself. It is um, the motto, you know, come and die. Number two, it's, and this, is, this one will be quick um, because it's pretty simple. And it's enveloped again in that other one as well. Negatively, conceit. You know, let nothing, zero percent, um, be of your life, your actions, your temperament, your attitude, be categorized as vainglory. Um, it's a compound word that literally just means empty glory. The idea is that someone who wants to see themselves and wants others to see them as great, as valuable. In all reality, God has declared that such a person is worthless and useless in the kingdom of God. They may be, they may be useful to the world. You know, they may be useful to Satan, the world, and the flesh to accomplish their goals, but God cannot use such a man. And God will not use such, God cannot use such a man because God will not use such a man. Not in a positive way. Sure, God can use all things for His glory, and He can even raise up Pharaoh to, to display His strength. But positively speaking, from a Christian perspective, God does not use such men. Uh, men who are puffed up and seeking their own gain and their own glory. Um, if anything, He will use them to raise them up to show His strength, His power, and His might in the judgment that He pronounces upon those people. And His, and his indignation is wrought upon them. And justice is proclaimed. And God is glorified. Those are the men that are the canvas of God's glory and His justice. We want to be and pursue to be the canvas of God's glory and His grace. What they do, and it's, it's deceitful. The danger of this type of glory is that it's deception. It's deceitful. There's deception in it. It's glory, yes. It's real. But it's worldly glory. And thus it's eternally meaningless. It's fleshly. It's carnal. It's useless. People who crave attention. They want to be seen by men, praised by men, loved by men, valued by men, esteemed by men. They love the praise of men more than the praise of God, the Scripture says. Let, that, let nothing be done for that. If you're operating in this church... In any, fa any fashion, as a leader, as a member, as one who's submitting, as a bystander, let nothing uh, be done through selfish ambition or vain conceit or in, to, to achieve your own empty glory. It's empty. It's useless. It's worthless. And all it'll do is generate strife um, and contention among your brethren. That's not the spirit of the believer. The spirit of the believer is, n number one, humility. So, so negatively, selfish ambition and conceit. And positively, what's the virtue? You know what the vice is? What's the virtue? Lowliness of mind. Lowliness of mind. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. What is lowliness of mind? What is lowliness of mind? Like Romans chapter 12, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. You know, lowliness of mind, or this term in, uh, in Greek culture, would have been a, a derogatory term. Um, at this time, nowhere outside of Christianity would have been used as a positive virtue. Uh, actually, the Greeks and the Romans despised humility. They looked at it like it was a weakness. Yet, within Christianity, um, it was the first time and continues to be a virtue. 
Paul uses it of his own ministry in Acts chapter 20, verse 18. Remember, as he warns against wolves, he says this of his own ministry, quote, You know, from the first day that I came to Asia, in what manner I was always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, all humility, with many tears and trials, which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews. I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you, and taught you publicly from house to house, testifying to the Jews, also to the Greeks, repentance towards God, and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is clear, blessed are the poor in spirit. It is the high place to take the low position. Um, exaltation comes through humility. Um, and it's only in the context of New Testament Christianity that this is a virtue. Um, humility of mind. It speaks of a deep sense. This is, a, this is a, a definition for you. It speaks of a deep sense of one's moral littleness. It speaks of a deep sense of one's moral littleness. And it must be noted that humility is not merely um, what we might note as a worm mentality. It's not a self-deprecating attitude with accompanying thoughts of you wanting you know, to... To give up on everything all the time because you're just worthless and nothing. Um, it's not an attitude that we have nothing to offer to anyone. So we'll just stay home and become a hermit, you know. So what is it? It's, a, it's in some sense an accurate picture of ourselves before God. That's what a humility of mine is. It's coming to grips with the truth and the reality of God's Word and you in presence of God. It's, a, it's an accurate picture of ourselves before God. Um, which will produce a lowliness of one's mind. It is seeing ourselves in such a way that no one else will ever see us. It is to think of ourselves no more highly than we ought, Paul says. You know, we see our motives, we see our heart, we see our mind. And what we see is always going to be deeper than what my wife sees, than what you see. It's going to be penetrating it's going to be exposing more dirt, more secrets, more sin than we could ever see in anyone else. This is why we'll never feel worthy of God's grace. But we'll look at others and say, I understand why God was gracious to them. I understand why that's God's choices of servants. They see themselves, this type of person sees themselves under the all-seeing eye of God. And live in the fear of God. So they have a low view of themselves. They're simply thankful for the grace and the mercy of God. Now, humility is quick to judge self before it judges anyone else. A humble person removes the log out of their own eye before they'll ever reach with hesitation for the speck in the brother's eye. When we have an appropriate view of ourselves, it, it calls us to serve others because we're so grateful, not only for God, but His, 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 His grace upon us to give us one another. The gospel call is a call to deny oneself. Fundamentally, it's a call to disassociate, to deny with oneself. In doing so, we're to associate with one another, particularly God. But in doing so, we are to serve Christ through serving others. And that's where the other side of the coin of humility, when, when, when it's true humility, there is this call to selflessness and self-forgetfulness, this serving, this stooping, this self-sacrificial love, this, this, this forgetting of one's self. And that's why Paul says in the next verse, negatively, let each of you look not out for your own interests 
But also, but, but, but for the interest of others, don't look out for yourself. Why? Because it's pride. It's a soul killer. And it's a killer of unity within the church. Self-absorption always leads to self-destruction. There can be no unity unless everyone falls in line with you. So there cannot be any unity at all. And that's why men lead as tyrants or, or those who don't, those who, who, who are coming into a church to, to promote their agenda, to have men follow them, that's why they don't stay long here. And listen, they've came through. You know, people who are just self-absorbed and desiring to put forth some type of ministry or some type of teaching, it doesn't take long before those wolves tuck and run. You know? So we don't lead that way here and we don't follow that way here. It kills unity within the church. It's destructive. It's destroying. And not on my watch. I'll lay in the door all day long. You know? These men are dangerous. These women are dangerous. But positively, so negatively, don't look out for your own interests. Look out for the interest of others. As a result of that grace and mercy and the very presence of God being presented to us, it produces in us the motivation to show mercy and grace to others. In part, because this is what God requires. You know? And I know that we do that with our children because they don't fully understand, you know. Love your brother. Why? Because God requires that of you, son, you know. Um, and it's sin not to. This grace that is wrought in us, uh, when it is wrought in us, changes us. That it becomes more than just an obligatory duty, but it becomes the very heart of the believer. As Christ sheds His love abroad in our heart, service becomes innate. It is inherent as the, as, the, as the love of Christ is shed abroad in us and Christ is ever before us and proclaimed and we see the Gospel more clearly. We see that pattern before us in verses um, uh, six, uh, 5 through 11. It provokes us. It changes us eternally and temporally to give ourselves in the same way that our Lord gave ourselves um, gave Himself for us. With the enlightening of the Spirit and the very mind of Christ, we see the true value of our brethren. We see ourselves unworthy of God's grace. And it too manifests itself in being unworthy of the gift of, of the grace of the brethren. You know? We don't deserve them. We don't deserve each other. I don't deserve you. When we look through the lens of the cross of Christ and the grace of God, it changes our world and our worldview. We look at one another. We look in ourselves and we look at one another and we praise God in all of our perfection and in all of our faults. Yet it causes our hearts to abound even not only in their infinite worth, but also in the practical use that God gets out of them for our ministry and for our sake to make His church more like Christ, to make me more like Christ. We are sharpening tools. We are iron sharpening iron. We are to see the grace of God shining in and through the brethren. We recognize, number one, Jesus died. So I should love them. But number two, their ministry was ordained by God and it's essential to me and worthy of being held up and protected. Thus we see something beautiful and attractive and spiritually edifying about their lives, about one another. I'm talking about us now. One another. There are all sorts of things that we can look to in their lives and praise God for on a daily basis as we think of one another because we profit from them. We're blessed by one another. We benefit from each other. It is Christ's presence among us to have us dwell one with another. What a blessing. What a treasure. This is why Paul can say, 
In 1 Corinthians 15, does this ever boggle your mind? I am the least of the apostles. Why? Because in his mind he was. In our minds, he was the greatest he ever was, that, that could ever be. He accomplished so much for the kingdom of Christ, for the Lord. He was used mightily of God. He was so eloquent, so loving, so faithful to the saints. I mean, it's hard to think of someone that would ever compare to the Apostle Paul in stamina, in perseverance, in love, in expression of grace, in the usefulness of God. Yet Paul will tell you on more than one occasion that that he was the least of the saints and the chief of sinners, he says. And this is not a few false humility. This was Paul genuinely convinced that he was the least. Why? Because he saw his own heart. He wasn't doing it for selfish ambition. He was just enamored by the grace of God that God would save a murderer like him. Someone who hated and was rebellious for decades of his life and had, contrib- had attributed most of his life in opposition to, to, to the God who created him and the, and, the, and the Son of God who had died for him. There was such a radical change because there was such radical grace that was just presented before him in the cross of Christ. When he met Christ that day, he was overwhelmed by the grace of God that he set his face towards Christ and that manifested itself in a life given to the brethren and to the church. He had a love for the brethren. You know why? Because he was a humble man. He recognized that he didn't deserve them. I imagine as people came and they wanted to honor and respect him, he received it. Yet at the same time, it made him somewhat uncomfortable. Because he saw himself as no better, no greater. Just a servant, a, a foot washer of sorts. One who had come to live and to, to minister and to die on behalf of Philippi. Men wanted to exalt them in 1 Corinthians, him and Peter and Apollos, um, to, to, to levels of status and to put them on thrones in some sense. And he said, I thank God I didn't baptize any of you. I want none of that. Except for Christ to be preached and the gospel to go forth. Paul um, had, a, had a true humility of mind in the face and fear of God. And he understood in 1 Corinthians 15 that he was what he was because it was only and solely by the grace of God. That's what he says. He says, I am what I am by the grace of God. And that humility of mind cultivated in him a love for the brethren and a life of service that he would lead and he would lead by example. He would go forth, not only carrying the right message, but being the right type of man. And he would encourage the saints to do the same. With a humble mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Speaks of genuine persuasion. He was truly persuaded that he was nothing before God. He was truly persuaded that it was all of grace. That's in Romans 12.9. He says, let love be without hypocrisy. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. Not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, contending steadfastly in prayer. I think he's referring to the saints there. Distributing to the needs of the saints in Romans 12. Given to hospitality, he says. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind one toward another. Paul's hobby horse, wasn't it? Do not set your mind on high things, he says but associate with the humble. 
Do not be wise in your own eyes or your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. This was Paul's attitude. He may not have lived in a position that was in his best interest because he lived in the position of the best interest of others, the people of God. Do you understand now why the apostle could be in prison and experience such joy? Because his mind was not on his own interests, but the interests of others. Brothers, because here I'm here, the brethren are stronger. Isn't that what he said weeks ago? Like in Philippians chapter number 1, how can you rejoice because I'm not interested in myself, I'm interested in you, I'm interested in the gospel, and the reality that I'm here means that my brothers are stronger, they're more faithful, the gospel's being declared. If that's the case, then this is where I ought to be. Show me another place on planet earth that could produce such fruit in my brothers. And then put me there. If not, leave me in chains. This is who he was. He didn't see himself as being a, a pope in a lofty throne delegating duties to men across the nations. He saw himself as a servant of God. And as long as God would leave him here, he knew it was by grace. So by grace, he would serve. This is the Christian life. This is how you have true joy. This is it. You will never have true joy through selfish ambition and vain glory. It will be, it will be glory that is robbed from you. It will be joy that is stolen away. Why? Because you're a thief of God's glory. And it, and it, and it's fickle and it, and it, and it, and it, and it goes up and down like a roller coaster and it, and it, and it proceeds, goes out and back like the waves. It comes and it goes. But when your interest is in the, in the, for the sake of others, regardless of what happens on the, 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 the top of the sea, there is peace in the bottom at the, at the, at the depths of it. Why? Because because my interest is not in what God can do for me, but what can I do? What can God do by me for others? The problem is, is that we're not generally genuinely persuaded not to esteem others better than ourselves, but to esteem ourselves better than others. We're genuinely, generally, genuinely persuaded that we are right. And we insist that the way that we see it is the way that it truly is. And sometimes that's true. Problem is, is that the other person does as well. Breeds contention. Brothers are hurt. There's no humility. Strife is generated. Contention, bitterness. And we're murdering the brethren in their hearts. The greatest pain that I've ever felt I come from atheists, it's not come from agnostics, it's not come from the pro boards, it's not come from the enemy. It's come from the brethren. It's come from selfish ambition. Sometimes it's because it was me. You know? It just has to be right. It has to be justified. It has to be authenticated. What I believe is biblical. What we're doing is right, this or that. Unwilling, unwilling 
willing to give, showing that I am the weaker brother. You know? And willing to give the benefit of the doubt. And willing to think the best. Quick to describe motives. Um, not truly loving my brothers or my sisters in Christ. This is where disunity is wrought. It's generally not in the essentials of the gospel. Um, it's generally in those other things that we just have convictions about and we're not willing to let it go. You know, those peripheral things um, for some reason are just so important to us, even more important than our brother for whom Christ died. In application, I wanted to give you just a few things. Number one, the Christian, uh, the Christian life is a life of humility. It's simple. The Christian life is a life of humility and self-forgetfulness. This week, as you labor in the Lord, do nothing through selfish ambition or vainglory. You should aim for zero percent. Why? Because it works in contrast to grace. When pride and selfishness dominate, there is on the one hand the flaunting of one's liberty and the insensities of one's conscience. What's the result? The lack of unity. There's grief. There's an aversion to one another. What's the answer? Romans 15.1 We're strong. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. And not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his God to build him up. For even Christ did not please himself, the text says. On the contrary, as it is written, quote, The insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For whatever things were written were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. Christ was not committed, Christ was not committed to the principle upon which most of us operate, self-love and ultimate autonomy, for if He was, none of us would have been saved. Yet He humbled Himself and took the obligations that were not inherently His and necessary for Him to take, but He did it according to His own will, operating out of a principle of love. And we too should as well. 1 Corinthians 10, Romans 14 give us clear illustrations where Paul commends the church, the stronger brother, the more mature, to exercise love in something that he knows that he has liberty to have. Why? For the sake of the brethren. Something he has a right to. Something he's convinced of. You know, 1 Corinthians chapter number 10. We love to quote that verse. Um, I mean, it's just... Um, it's a reform. It's a reform banner. I mean, it's just a Christian banner. Therefore, whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And what we think is, is that we go home and we think, man, I can, I can, I can eat my honey nut Cheerios this morning to the glory of God. And there's truth in that, you know. I can eat New Covenant bacon, you know, for the glory of God and just revel in it. And I can, and I enjoy it. And maybe will today. Um, I'm not sure. But that's not the primary implication of this text. Actually, this comes out of a conversation of, of dying to self for the brethren. Verse number, 21, verse number 28 of chapter 10, But if anyone says to you, this was offered to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who told you. And for the conscience sake, for the earth is the Lord in all its fullness, conscience, I say not your own, but that of the other. 
For why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? But if I partake with thanks, why am I evil spoken of for the food over which I give thanks? Therefore, whether you eat or whether you drink, do uh, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense, he says. Next verse. Either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many that they may be saved. Paul's governing principle was not his own interest and something that he was convinced of that he even had in a new covenant liberty purchased to him by Christ. He said, not if it, if, not if it, not if it offends my brother. I won't do it. Not once. I know that I could. I know the pleasure that I would take in it. In some sense, I would glory and revel in that. But not today. Not my brother is too important. He's too important. Brethren, be willing to relinquish some right, some privilege, or some liberty for the one for whom Christ died uh, and His blood was shed. It might just build Him up. It might just bring Him along. What have you given up that you love because you love someone even more? What in your life have you given in which you take ultimate pleasure in but you've said, I won't do that. I'm going to give that away. Why? Because I love my brother more. Because I love Christ more. You may say, well, I just stopped because they don't understand. No, you don't understand. Jesus Christ didn't enter into the world and bargain or make a proposal to you. He didn't come and say, you know, like if you really take this eternal life thing seriously, I was thinking about dying for you. What do you say? Well, I mean, that sounds pretty good. I'd like to try that. Then Jesus says, no, no, you, you can't just try it. I mean, I'm going to die. And if I'm going to die, you've got to be pretty serious about it before I give it to you. No, He enters into the world uh, of, a, of, a, of persistent, rebellious haters of God who weren't going to change until the sacrifice was made. And it's through the presentation of that sacrifice and word and deed that I was changed. It was in that act. That God used that already that sacrifice on behalf of sinners that wrought in me and in you the change of eternal benefit. Let us learn to sacrifice not for the benefit we hope to receive, but because it's selfish ambition, but because that's who we are. That's what Christ birthed in us. Why? Because we have the same mind as Christ. Let us spend and be spent. Why? Because of the interest we have of others, not in our own. Let us not pursue others because of what we can get out of them. But let us pursue others because this is who we are. This, if this is not your vision of marriage, your fatherhood, motherhood, childhood, single life, work, church life, offices within the church, pastoral role, the diaconate, um, if it does not include dying on the altar of service for others to aid them in completing their life, being more like Christ, their calling, your vision is not godly. It's not. We are by nature apt to selfish and to utilize even God-ordained means of grace to utilize for our own glory and it's selfish and it's an offense to God. We are servants. We are foot washers at best. And thanks be to God that He would employ a sinner like ourselves to take the feet of the least of these and pour over them for just a few moments. Because they are God's grace to us. 
And we see in them the glory of Christ. Number two. Humility is the character and test of true godly men. And I call for humility and I call for um, um, lowliness of mind. And when I call for um, meekness, I'm not calling for weak, passive men. You know, I'm not asking you to come into to, 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 to more of a, a relationship with your emotions. You know, I'm not saying that you just need to throw your hands down, sell all your guns, you know, and give all your all your your stock to the poor. Um, True humility is a character and test of true godly men. You know, Philippians gives us three. If you were to study Philippians, you'd find out um, in Philippians chapter number two that Paul sends Timothy because he's that kind of man. That Epaphroditus was that kind of man. That Paul was that kind of man. Philippians chapter 2 verse 19. But I trust in the Lord to send Timothy to you shortly that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. For all seek their own. Not the things which are of Christ Jesus. But you know His proven character. That as a son with his father, he served with me in the gospel. Therefore, I hope to send him at once. That, that Paul commends Timothy for this reason. To go, Epaphroditus came. You can read it on in chapter 2. For this reason, even almost gave his life unto death. Why? For, for Paul and those that were at Philippi. Paul is willing to be poured out in 2.17 as a literal sacrifice for those at Philippi. He knows when to give. You know? That true men are humble men, not weak men. They're like lions. You know, you, you, ever, you ever watch a, a man at the zoo walk in with a lion? And you're like, at any moment, like that, that thing is majestic, but at any moment, he could, just, he, could just, he could just devour him, you know? It's like Jesus. People want to look at Jesus Christ like he's some passive tree-hugging hippie that just, just couldn't help himself there. And you know what he was? He was the king of all glory. You know, he, he willingly, like a lion, uh, w- walked to the cross. He was not bound by those chains at any moment. He could have called down legions of angels. And he wasn't a social justice warrior caught in the trappings of, 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 a, of a secular society and was a victim. Jesus Christ was not a victim. Before the world was ever fashioned, he had determined to be a lamb slain from, from before the foundation of the world. And what he is, he's like the lion of the tribe of Judah walking towards the cross, knowing what to give and what not to. to not to lay aside his deity, but to come man, lay aside rights and privileges. Why? For the good of the saints. A man knows what he can give and what he can't. And a man knows what to lay down and what he won't. And we need men. Men that are discerning. Women that are discerning. That that, that know what God requires of them. Know when to fight. When to take up arms. When not to skirt around the gospel. When to proclaim it. When to go. When to stay. And what, what they can and cannot lay down. Paul knew. I mean, it takes the greatest strength. Now, to lay down your life, not only in death, but day to day. Number four, I think I'm going to skip one there. Well, number three, I'll just go ahead and give it to you quickly. Cultivate a heart that takes great joy in that. You know, some of you are feeling condemned right now. You, you don't need to. Why would he ask me to give that up? I'm not. I'm saying, look to Christ. 
Paul has the greatest of joy as he takes interest in others. Hey, you do that. Humble yourself. See yourself before God, you know. Number four, unity is the work personally and corporately of the church, you know. Chapter number four, Euodia and Syntyche, you know what he says? He says, this is your all's business. <laughs> Paul doesn't sit down with them and he doesn't correct them. Surely he knows what's going on. He doesn't push them one way or he doesn't push them another. You know, he could have given his, given his opinion on the matter, but he doesn't. You know, because it's more important, as I'm convinced, it's more important for them to work through the process, you know, to work through the process of humbling themselves before God. Be of the same mind, he says, and if they can't, church, help them. He goes on to, to speak of moderation. Yield yourselves. Be of, you know, he says rejoice, and I think it's verse number five. He says be moderate. You know what that means? It means to yield. He encourages those women as well as the church at Philippi, yieldedness, um, reasonableness. Know when to yield, know when to give up. You know, I, I think most of you know that I'm, I'm not a guy that likes conflict. It's a strength in some sense, but it's probably more so a weakness. But I've come to grips with it as a pastor, as a husband, as a friend. It's part of the job. It's part of life. I get it. It doesn't quite bother me as much as it did. I expect it. Why? Because we're people. What does bother me, though, is being in a meeting with a, meeting with a married couple or a meeting with two church members, or being in a men's meeting, or hearing about a men's meeting in which conflict arises. And again, the conflict doesn't bother me. What bothers me is when I hear that both held their ground on an unclear, somewhat ambiguous, non-biblically supported position. <laughs> and maybe it's even the opposite. Maybe it's a good one. You might look and say, man, I appreciate those. That was a good fight. They're principled men. Got to appreciate that. Maybe not. Maybe it bothers me. Maybe it bothers me because maybe they're not humble men. Humble women. They think they're Christ-like and that's worth guarding. They're fighting for what they believe in. Maybe they're not thinking like Christ at all. Who was willing to give. Willing to forfeit. Because they preferred their brother more than they preferred themselves. And I'm not arguing here for things that matter. There's things we don't move on. There's things in a conversation, you put them out of the church, you know. I mean, there's things worth living for and dying for, truly worth dying for. You know what one of those things are? Your brother. Your brother's worth dying for. He's more important than food or drink. And I'm not talking about dying by giving your life um, in death on into eternity. I'm talking about now, today. He's worth dying for today. Are you willing to live and die for your brother in Christ? And be willing to die today. Die to yourself. As I said, real men, humble men, know what to live for. And they know what to die for. Dying doesn't begin when I'm 80 on hospice. For the Christian, dying begins today. It begins living. And true living in Christ is dying like Christ. I would encourage all you men and women, as you grow in Christ... And grow convictions. Love the gospel. But don't be immature and think that every heel that you, know, that you believe is worth dying. I've met people like that. 
They're still looking for churches today. <laughs> they can't find anybody to fellowship with. You know why? Because none of them are exactly like them. You know? Philosophy of ministry, secondary, tertiary issues. There'll be bitterness of heart. They'll be angered towards brother. And we're just murdering one another. You know? All the while, the world's declining. Tri-cities filled with the lost. And we're here arguing over colors and sizes, peripheral things that at the end of the day, what does it really matter? You know? There's issues within the body that are inhibiting the body because the body is fighting against itself. The picture in Philippi is of a unified body moving forth against the adversaries. Why? Because they know what to fight for, they know what to die for, and they know not what to. They know what not to. They know what hills to die on. And they know what hills not to. And a hill to die on is for your brother. And a hill to die, not to die on is for yourself. So let nothing be done through selfish ambition or vainglory. But through lowliness of mind, let us esteem others better than ourselves. Let's pray. Father, we love and thank you and praise you for the glory of Christ. Father, we thank you for Jesus and all of his glory and all of his sufferings. Father, we are just so thankful for the gospel. Father, it boggles my mind when men say that they've met you and been in your presence. And it doesn't bring them to their knees. You are beyond all glorious, all loving, all gracious, all holy. Father, seemingly holy other than I am. Every once in a while I get a glimpse into that and just revel in that glory. Father, I preach a sermon like this to my own heart and I thank Father how gracious you are. Father, help us to see ourselves in light of the gospel. Help us to see ourselves in light of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Father, give us a love for the brethren. Father, and help us turn our eyes and our faces from the mirror to God and his world, Father, to the church. Help us to love one another. Help us to know, Father, when to go and when to stay, when to fight and when to lay down arms, Father. Give us a love for our brothers, that Christ has for us, that you may unify the body, and that we may make a little hole in the darkness, Father, here in the Tri-Cities. Father, may Kingsport, Bristol, and Johnson City know that Jesus Christ is Lord of this church. Father, may we not go out of existence before all the surrounding areas have seen the display of your glory. And because of the way we lived and died, not because we rotted in our own strength, but because the grace of God was cultivated in it, may we not hide it, Father, under a bushel, but may we be a city that's set upon a hill, Father, that shines forth, and that you use that, just sinners saved by grace, Father, to bring more children into your fold. Father, we're, we're looking to this because we know this is what Christ accomplished. So we're looking with faith, Father. Um, Merge those areas, Father, where we're in disagreement. 
Help us, Father, to lay aside those things and come together as your body, Father. We know that will only take place through humility and self-forgetfulness. So help us, Father, to forget ourselves and to remember Christ and one another. It's in his name we pray. Amen. We will stand and sing. Thank you so much for your attentiveness. Number 393, let us do...